0: Everybody tries to fix human problems, but uh, you really can't fix something that only God can fix. And um, so uh, we can try various ways to try to bring people together um, to stop violence, to stop crime, to stop, well, just about anything that is terrible, um, to stop um, despair, suicide. Uh, But it's not something you can fix. It's something that takes the power and the presence of Jesus to heal, to save, and to change. And so uh, t- tonight I'm speaking on racism and reconciliation. It's the title of my message. On the 7th of June, I, I spoke a message called Racism, and I used James chapter um, 2, verse 1, that said, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ— Um, must not show favoritism. So let me say that again. Brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord and our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So favoritism can take many forms. It can be the current racism that we see, uh, blacks and whites. It can be um, prejudices that we hold against those who've hurt us, wounded us. It can be um, separation within a family. And... uh, what are the causes of that separation, and uh, how do we address those things, and how do we pray into them to see healing and grace come? Well, uh, we had a prayer meeting here last night, and I, I talked about some of these things, and some of the scriptures that I'll be, I'll be sharing tonight are actually the same scriptures that we shared last night. And so I guess now this is the fifth time in three days that I will have read these scriptures and in each case, each occasion, I just find something new and fresh in in uh, in that experience, and uh, I expect the same thing will happen um, tonight. So um, we're just going to ask the Lord to just uh, touch our hearts and minds, and and be open to what the Spirit of God says um, to you, because this is something far bigger, much bigger than we can. T- Preach in one uh in one message, and so um, in fact, it's not a sermon it's it's an impartation of the holy spirit and uh, I pray that you will be open to receive well uh last night all week, we were trying to find the movie Amazing Grace, the story of william Wilberforce and uh sent out an email, and Bonnie um, Malivaux saw the email, and she said, there's one back in the library. And (laughs) so we found one, and uh, after the service last night, I went home and Marlene and I watched it. And it was a very powerful movie. It's a movie you want to see. It takes you back into the uh, British government, the um, House of Commons in the British Parliament back at the time of Wilberforce in the late 1700s, and uh, how most of these um, members of parliament were actually slave owners. And uh, so slavery was something that uh, Wilberforce was just really, really um, desperate to do all he could to to stop it, to bring laws into Great Britain that would affect, of course, the whole British Commonwealth. Uh, back, back then it was the British Empire, which would affect, which would include Canada. And so it's a very, very good movie. And uh, uh, there's a man who plays um, the role of who wrote Amazing Grace? Um, John Newton, yes. And, uh, and he, he factors into the, um, to the movie quite interestingly. So uh, we'll figure out a time when we can show it. Um, we can do it right here uh we could even set up chairs along the front here depending how many t- how many showings we do and uh, how many people want to see it but that's something to um to uh, look at now i've been uh, sharing with you some of you've heard me say this that in our family of origin marlene and i uh both of our parents had um had uh great prejudice uh, racial prejudice Mar- marlene's dad um, often used the N-word in describing black people. In fact, more than that, he believed that blacks were not um, really fully human, not like um, whites are. And uh, I know that when I talked to him after we were married, I was appalled about, about this, and uh, th- that's what he believed. Now, um, he was a good dad, a wonderful dad, provided for Marlene, and the family loved Marlene, as did my dad love uh, me and our family, and my dad was also prejudiced. Uh, This time, it was uh, about the Germans and the Japanese. Now, he had been a medic in World War II, so he fought in North Africa and in Italy, And he uh, would have seen the most unbelievable things. He never described them to me. Uh, He never talked about the war. It was such a painful thing for him. Um, But he would have seen people wounded. He would have seen people shot and killed. He would have seen people uh, blown up by bombs or artillery. And he would have had to try to take people off of the field and uh, get them out and and, uh, try to deal with the dead and get the, the wounded. Uh, choose which ones he thought could survive, and those who couldn't. I, I don't know how he could have endured what he did for five years. Um, and so you can understand his prejudice towards Germans and Japanese, and and he expressed it in that he did not like Volkswagens and he did not like Datsuns. And Datsuns were the pretty well the main um, the main uh, chi- uh, Japanese car that was here back the, back then when I was growing up in the sixties. Well, um, you might say, well, aren't you being a little hard on your dad? Like he was, um, if you'd have gone through five years of that, wouldn't you be resentful and prejudiced? And I probably would be, as would anybody be. But this is where we come into the cross. This is where we come into the, the whole dynamics of what Jesus did for us and how we understand uh, those who hurt us. And uh, in the in the New Testament church, we see uh, Christians being killed all the time by by Romans. They're put on crosses. They're thrown into the lions uh, to the lions in the Roman Colosseum, and uh, the horrors of all that they experienced. And yet, we don't see anywhere where they show hatred towards the Romans. We don't see anywhere where they tried to do a political uprising or speak evil about them. Neither did Paul did not. Uh, Jesus did not. Paul was in Caesar's house knowing that he was going to be executed. And yet he loved on them. And so many people in Caesar's house became Christians. And so he had this. So And then when you get to the book of Revelation, you see the honor that Jesus gives to the martyrs, to those who did not Hold their own lives dear, but we're willing, if challenged, uh, to lay down their lives for Christ, rather than to renounce Him. And so we, as we look at this, we say, Lord, what is the spirit of the church? What what is the spirit of God saying to us when it comes to our role in the world at this time? And it's a it's a a critical thing for us to consider, and uh, that's what. I want to share with you um, about tonight. Now the idea of um, the origin of racial prejudice as we see it in the world today, blacks, whites, really began in the 17th and 18th centuries uh, because of the slave trade. Uh, Five years ago, the British Broadcasting Corporation published an article titled, The History of British Slave Ownership Has Been Buried. 46,000 slave owners, a surprisingly surprisingly large number, uh, were in Britain uh, during those years, 46,000. Now, their slaves would have been both in Britain themselves, uh, servants in homes, slaves in homes, and on the farms of uh, Britain, but they were also, uh, and mostly, in the Caribbean on the plantations, the sugar plantations, Um, and uh, they were just... Well, as you read the article, you just see how, how terrible it is. And these articles um, that I'm quoting from tonight, I will be publishing them so you can look at them uh, for yourself. One of the things the British said uh, that was to try to mask the history, and they, they whitewashed their history so that they really didn't talk about it very much, about the the slave slavery and slave ownership. And one of the ways that they mastered was to give praise to William Wilberforce, and they said he is—he uh, was the guy that led us into uh, freedom for all peoples, and uh, so they honored him amazingly. And you see that in the in the movie. And um, of course, William Wilberforce is buried in Westminster Abbey. He's really a, a, a hero in British history. But he paid a price, and he did not have, he simply did not have the support of, of the parliament when he was struggling to bring about change. Well, um, Canadians, <laughs> um, we think, well, we didn't do that. But, well, yes, we did. Um, the Canadian Museum of, for Human Rights published an article titled The Story of Slavery in Canada. And in part, uh, the article said this, When Canadians talk about slavery, we often point with pride to the role our country played in the, or in the mid-1800s sorry, as a safe haven for Americans escaping captivity via the Underground Railroad. But this, however, is only half the story. Like the United States, this land has its own history of slavery, and it is a history we should never forget. And just to give you an example of that, um, people who wrote their wills during that period of time would include the names of their slaves. This is Canada. And uh, so if you had a a farm and you were going to will it to your son, um, you would, would put down the, you know, the horses and the cattle and the barn and the fields and just basically the farm. And you would list things, including your slave or slaves so i bequeathed to my son this person he's now your slave when i die and so it was like humans were treated like property like animals like you inherited livestock or something in fact um uh, well that's just really an incredible thing and, and as as you and then whenever emancipation came and the british parliament Uh, issued um, the decree that slavery was ended, Uh, there's accounts even right over here in Prince Edward Island, and no doubt there would be similar accounts in Nova Scotia, where once slavery ended, the owners of the slaves would say, well, you still have to work for seven years before I let you go. And those practices were common right here in Canada, and there was nobody really to check them out. Now, when it comes to uh, Nazi Germany, we often think of Nazi Germany exclusively in terms of their um, persecution and execution of the Jews and uh, the Holocaust, the six million that died in concentration camps through the gas chambers and other means. Uh, and yet, uh, blacks were equally treated or treated equally. Um, It wasn't just the the Jews who went to the gas chambers, but blacks and others as well. Um, And it says in the article published by the BBC titled Being Black in America, or sorry, Being Black in Germany, they said in part that in the Nazi era from 1933 to 1945, African Germans numbered in their thousands. So there were thousands of blacks in Germany during the Nazi period. It says there was no uniform experience. In other words, not everyone was treated exactly the same, but over time they were banned from having relationship with white people. They were excluded from education and types of employment. And some of them were sterilized while others were taken to concentration camps and killed. Now, um, Adolf Hitler, um, who wrote, of course, was the leader of Nazi Germany, he wrote a book in 1925 called Mein Kampf, and it literally means in English, My Struggle. And uh, in it, he says this, It was and is the Jews who bring the Negroes into the Rhineland, always with the same secret thought and clear aim of ruining the hated white race by the necessarily resulting bastardization. That's what he wrote. Uh, Children, younger people, uh, starting in about 1937, if they were black, they were forced into sterilization. Children. Uh, That's, well, we, we know the terrible history of Nazi Germany, but we don't always understand just how the blacks were victimized at that time as well. Now, today, uh, there's uh, what we refer to as Neo-Nazis. And Neo-Nazis are people who live today, so obviously they weren't part of the actual Nazi regime in the 30s and 40s. But Neo-Nazis today hold to the same uh, ideologies of the Nazis in Germany. And uh, we see them, uh, actually, uh, I don't remember what year it was. I think it was 1967. It uh, was the last year of the Nazi Party of Canada. And it was the last year they ran candidates in, for, for a parliament. They never elected anybody, but they actually had a party, a political party. Uh, on November 27, 2019, CTV News published an article titled Encyclopedia of Hate a look at the neo-Nazi militant movements with roots in Canada. Uh, And the article goes on to just show how many Nazi groups there were, neo-Nazi groups in post-war 1945, and how they're still here today. Well, a hate slogan used by neo-Nazis and other right-wing extremist groups, uh, one of them is, White Lives Matter. And so when you see a slogan like that, you say, well, that really isn't that bad, is it? I mean, white lives matter, don't they? Just like every other life. And uh, so, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what color of skin you are, white lives matter. And uh, black lives matter and every other color. Uh, In fact, you know, we used to say that well we're white and and the, and the rest of the world blacks are colored and, and we have different designations for different colors of skin well the fact is white is a color therefore we're all colored and it's just really crazy because nowhere in the bible do you see a distinction made being made between um, uh, the color of your skin making you better or worse than another person it's very much a, a a condition of a fallen human race that has fallen not just apart from each other, but in the first instance we've fallen away from God, and that would create—that's what creates all of these things. Well, uh, in an article published by the Anti-Defamation Anti-Defama- League titled "White Lives Matter," the following is stated. White Lives Matter is a white supremacist phrase that originated in early 2015 as a racist response to Black Lives Matter, uh, a movement which arose to protest against police brutality against African Americans and garnered considerable publicity in 2014 for protests in Ferguson, Missouri, followed, following the shooting death of Michael Brown at the hands of, the, of a Ferguson police officer. So ever since uh, the Black Lives Matter um, was coined back in those days, then to counter that, um, neo-Nazis and other extreme groups refer to white lives matter. Not just that they matter equally, but white lives are supreme. It's a racist, um, very derogatory term. In the... uh, the, the One of the questions that, of course, this, this was asked in the States uh, for sure. It would have been asked by any country that had slaves. How do you justify this? How do you justify owning another person and abusing them to the point that they die or their children die or they're torn apart from their families? How do you justify that? Um, of course, in the... In the right in the at the time that uh, the U.S. did the Charter of of, um, Independence, they included right in there that all men are equal. And uh, so if that was the case, how could you own somebody? So in order to to rationalize those kinds of statements, you had to, to conclude that they weren't really human. And a whole science, it's a false science, it's been disproven over and over again, rose in the U.S. and other places that perpetrated that idea. Uh, there's a noted physician in in the States uh, on March 12, uh, 1981, 51, sorry, 1851. His name was Samuel A. Cartwright, and he wrote to the Medical Association In Louisiana, that blacks or Negroes uh, had smaller brains, smaller blood vessels, and in fact, they were really more closer to the ape, to apes, than they were to humans. And when you adopted that idea, you could say, okay, well, then it's okay to own them, because we can own horses and cows and pigs and other animals. Why can't we own blacks? uh isn't it terrible how far the human race can fall? It really is and and that was here in Canada. It's a part of our heritage um the um The Bible says that we uh the sins of the of the fathers can be passed on to successive generations as far as ten generations. And it doesn't mean we're responsible for the sins of our fathers, but the effect of those sins can be passed on to us and so uh, as we realized the racial prejudice of our own dads, we started to uh, and this process began has been working through us over the last uh, few weeks. Um, we need to renounce what happened we We cannot yes generational curses we cannot repent for them because we didn't do it but we can renounce the effects of it through uh prayer through the word uh, through faith through uh praying with others if it sticks with us if we if we think we're not free from the curse um anyway this is no small thing and we we all need to be aware of the fact that it doesn't matter what the sin was, racism or something else. It does get passed on to us uh, through, through previous generations. In fact, you really need to go all the way back to Adam. That's where sin began and it's been passed on through the ages. Well, um, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what was the cause. At 5 o'clock this morning, I woke up. I don't know if it was because I watched Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce, or maybe it was the peanut butter sandwich I had before I went to bed, or maybe it was the Holy Spirit. I'm kind of leaning towards it being the Holy Spirit. But I woke up remembering something that I had completely forgotten for, I'm sure, over 50 years. And that is that when I was a child... I used the N word over and over and over again in a slogan. I'm sure I didn't know what I was saying, and I'm, it was a little—it was a little rhyme, and uh, and it's and it has an, the N word in it. And I know my mother used to say that little slogan, and probably innocently, and I would have and. I wouldn't have realized what, it, what the implication was. But I got up, and, and I, I lay in bed for a while, and then I got up at 6 o'clock, and I just prayed, God, forgive me. It was I was just a kid, but I did it. And I, I, just, I just renounced what I did, and I asked for forgiveness. And it was a sin of an innocent child, but the nature of the sin was horrendous to refer to a black person with the N-word. Um, and I, I, I and I felt the weight of that, uh, and, and I couldn't get back to sleep. I just I just thought I felt God is speaking to me about just how serious this thing is, and how how callous we can be, or unaware of our own prejudicial conversations or behaviors or or prejudices towards people that are so opposite to Jesus. So opposite to who we are and and who we're called to be. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, uh, it says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Now, a Cushite was an Ethiopian and probably black or for sure very dark-skinned. And they, they began to talk against Moses because he had married this wife. Now, Marion and Aaron were his brother and sister, and uh, he depended upon them. He relied upon them. Um, the wife whose name was Zephora, and just wasn't. Uh, uh, she just didn't fit the culture of the Jewish people at that time. Uh, the early church fathers used to refer to this as an example of how God was going to bring the Gentiles and the Jews together in Christ in the New Testament. And so they saw this as a picture of what happened when Jesus came. When I say the early church fathers, I mean uh, spiritual leaders from the second, third, first century. Um, and, And so that's really quite an observation that they made. Now, the term white race or white people never was in European language or North American language until the slave trade. We never referred to ourselves as white people until that time. And it was in the context of the Atlantic slave trade that that term started to be coined. Well, um, I've said this in both services this morning. I'll say it again tonight. There's a tendency... That people of darker skin than mine, they want to scrub off the dark and get it as light as they can. Or we saw this in Hong Kong all the time. Uh, Women would, in the hot sun, have an umbrella. Not to protect themselves from, you know, uh, rather new sunscreen. It was because they didn't want their skin to get darker. Now, let me, let me say this. That's idolatry. That's holding up a white person to be someone you want to be like, even if it's just something as innocent, it seems, as skin. It's idolatry. It's not what God has called you to honor who you are as he created you. Not to wish that he created you to be some, someone else or something else or of a different color. Uh, well, okay. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 12. Now, these scriptures, uh, if you can get them into your spirit, um, these are life-changing scriptures, and I don't think you just read them just once. I, I don't know how many times I've read them in the last two weeks. Um, oh, I really don't know. But over and over and over again. And every time I do, I just, I just feel Holy Spirit just... Uh, bring something else to light in my in my heart ephesians two verses eleven um, to um, two verses eleven to twenty two therefore remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, so this is being written to the Church of Ephesus, which was a Greek city, so these were people, but the most of them, there would have been Jewish people there too, but the most of them would have been Gentiles. Um, they would have been from Greek culture. And so they were not the circumcision, they weren't of the Jews. So he says, by birth, you were um, called uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcision or in other words, the privileged, the ones who came from Abraham's family. And it says, now remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the province. So here we have um, excluded from citizenship. A black person could not get citizenship in Canada for many years or the states, or any, no slave could ever become a citizen. And so you can apply this directly to what we're dealing with today in this whole idea of racism. Uh, they, you were foreigners. You didn't really embrace the covenants, the privileges of being a person who was a Jew under the covenant promises of Abraham. And you were without hope and without God in the world. So there was no escape. There was, you were locked in to a system that you couldn't get out of. I wonder how many slaves in in the in the boats coming across the the Atlantic. And Coonley's uh, uh, here. Uh, he's got Lilana with him, so he's kind of walking back and forth. But last week he told me that um, from his country, from Nigeria, you can go there and see the places where the shackles. You see remnants. Of the, of the places where um, slaves were captured and, and uh, they have artifacts from that period. And uh, I'm talking about you, Kunle, <laughs> uh, but, and, and what you shared. And the idea that that was his home country, and I never thought that the slave trade went that far south in Africa, but it did uh and i guess it's a a gripping thing to experience looking at it this is where it happened uh the what you'll see on the uh the story of uh, amazing grace is just really really grips your heart when you when you start to understand the terror that these black slaves endured and they were without hope they would shackle them in the ships And suspend them from the floor, so just with a chain around their neck, with her hands shackled, and just enough weight on their feet, they would have a rope above them, uh, or a chain, and pull them up. just So their toes were just touching the ground enough for them not to die from asphyxiation, from hanging. And the reason that they did that was to keep them from jumping overboard. Because the conditions were so terrible, it was better that they die than they continue. And so the the, the horrific nature of what they did, they were truly without hope in this world. Now, how many people in our world today are without hope? What about those precious children in in Haiti that we've been uh, talking about? And Tanya Cusi is scheduled to be here not this coming week, but the following week, to share and to minister to the church. I'm looking forward to her coming Um, because she has a way of just convicting you of just how what the call of the church is in a world that's so broken and destitute and impoverished. Um, And how can we? I mean, these are people without hope, just like the Bible says they were without God in the world. But he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in in reference to the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews being God's chosen people of the Old Testament, and they failed miserably. They they put Jesus on the cross. And the the Gentiles who served all kinds of gods, they were polytheists and pantheists and everything else, they they were so far apart, you, you couldn't one could not see the other in a sense. But they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We would have to have lived in that culture to understand what that represented. And it says, for he is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What is the mission of the church? What God did through Christ was take the circumcision and the uncircumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he brought them together. And he made the two groups one. And the Bible says that in Christ there's neither Jew or Gentile. There's no difference between man and woman. Uh, All of those distinctions disappear when you truly understand the gospel and you understand what God has done. And so uh, uh, these are powerful, powerful statements that uh, are made. And he has destroyed the wall of hostility, the dividing wall of hostility. And all we hear about today is hostility between blacks and whites and other groups. And we say, well, what's going to happen? How are we ever, is it going to come through um, some kind of new um, laws concerning how police act and what they can and cannot do? Is it going to come through a better justice system? Is it going to come through trying to fix the things that are in our legal system or our social system? Like the little video said, you can't fix this. There's only one person who can make the two one, and that's Jesus. And that's the calling of the church. And I pray that the, the, the spirit of this will be so deeply impressed in your, in your life. And, and it happens by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. What was his purpose? To create in himself. You can't do it through legislation or any other way. Uh, But our new humanity, out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Okay. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for my sins, right? He died for your sins. And he paid the price, and we celebrate what he did for us. He gave his life for us, and we we rejoice in that. Um, but it's much more than that. He died to take away the hostility that exists between us and anybody else. Uh, somebody who's hurt you, abused you, a family member, somebody of another color who criticized you or spoke evil of you. Um, He died to take away the hostility, uh, to put it to death. And he came and preached peace to you who who were once far away and peace to those who were near. So that's, those that are far away are the Gentiles, those who are near were the Jews. For three, through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now when this the church first started, the Jewish Christians who became saved on the day of Pentecost and thereafter, they thought, wow, this is wonderful. Jesus died for us. He is Messiah. And then somebody said, well, the Jews are getting saved. The Gentiles are getting saved. And they heard that in Antioch, the gospel was being preached to Greeks. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he got there, he reported back, I saw the grace of God. I saw the grace of God. And so the church started to wrestle with this idea. Can the Gentiles actually be saved? And some of them said, well, yeah, probably, but they have to become Jews first. And so we, we have to circumcise the men in order for them to be Christians, because, of course, you have to be a Jew first. Jesus died for the Jews. And if Gentiles are supposed to get in on it, they have to come to the Jewish doorway. Well, that was the issue of the early church. That was a big issue. And uh, you can read the book of Galatians, and it's all about that. The whole book of Galatians is about that, as also is the book of Romans and And convincing everybody that uh this is not uh, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. In fact, Ephesians is addressing that in this passage that we are we're dealing with right now, and uh, for it, through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, verse um, seventeen through Jesus, we both have access to the Father. By one spirit. So you don't have to go through anybody. You don't need me uh, or anybody else. It's in Jesus, through Jesus, that we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. Imagine telling... A slave in the 1700s, you're no longer a slave. You're a full Canadian citizen. Um, But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become in him, we all come together as a building, and we rise to become. So it's not an instant thing. It's something that is a process, a process that continues to this day. We we pr- uh, rise, and we are becoming a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in God, uh, to be a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. How do you know? We're a spirit-filled church. I believe with my whole heart that the primary evidence is this, what we're reading right now. And the rest is important. But if it's not based on this, it's not really accomplishing what God intends. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16-21, and I'll close with this. So from now on, we regard no one with a worldly point of view. Okay? If we do regard people with a worldly point of view, we will regard them prejudicially. We will regard them with hate or contempt or resentment or I want to get even. That's a worldly point of view. And though we once regarded Christ in this way, we don't do so any longer. So before... Uh, These Christian Jews and these Christian Gentiles uh, despised Jesus. The Jews thought he was, well, they thought he was filled with the devil for one thing. They killed him. The Gentiles, they came from another, a whole different way of thinking. And if they did give him any credence, he was just one of the many gods, not the true and the living God. But we don't think of him that way anymore, Paul is saying. Uh, We see him now for who he is. Truly, is God's love gift to this world? Who, who descended, was born. <laughs> Do you know what's interesting about how He identified when He? Well, first of all, He came to 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 Bethlehem, but then when He breathed His first breath, He breathed the air that we breathe, and so connected with us. And that's just one way, one of the ways He did. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone, the new is here. Now, we all say, well, yeah, that's, that's me. I was a sinner. Jesus saved me. It's all, the old is gone. I'm not the same person I was. I'm now a new creation in Christ. And that's true. But in the context, that's not really the full meaning of the verse. The new creation has come. What is that new creation? The two becoming one the dividing thing the things that divided us and the worldly points of view that we had that separated us those are dissolved at the cross and the new is here the the old is gone and the new is here and and it explains it in the next verse what is that what what is that and this is from god who reconciled us unto himself through christ and gave to us that ministry the ministry of reconciliation so the new thing as it works its way through us our salvation we're reconciled to God through Jesus then we become those who minister reconciliation in the world and so we don't we don't hate anybody uh people can talk against muslims and say they're they're bad people and uh, you know, I've heard uh, Emmanuel talk about some of how terrible it is, and uh, in in Nigeria, with the radical Muslims killing Christians, and he almost lost his life himself. Well, um, yeah, there sure is that, but that also happened back in the early church. And do we hate them? Do we speak disparagingly of them or do we see them as people who are yet to be saved? And if we see them as yet to be saved, we put ourselves in the mix in a totally different way. Not speaking against them, but loving them and bringing them to Jesus. Are you with me? You okay with all this? Uh, If you're against it. See Marlene at the end of the service. She'll straighten you out. Uh, (laughs) um, Okay, so he's given us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. (laughs) Imagine if he counted your sins against you when you asked him to save you. What chance would you have had? I wouldn't have had a chance. None of us would. If we came to Jesus and he said, oh, oh, oh there's so-and-so, let me check my book. Oh, do I have a list? And they're bad. And I'm going to read the list. I'm going to read the riot li- list and tell them the, the riot act and tell them they they deserve hell, not heaven. But he didn't count our transgressions or our sins Against us. So, what about people who've hurt us? What about people who are of a different race, different color of skin? And so, therefore, they in fact saying a different race is wrong. We're all one race. We're the human race. But we use that term to distinguish between uh, colors, if you will. And what if? How do we then take what? God did for us through Jesus in not counting our sins against us and then holding somebody else of a different race or color, somebody in our family who's hurt us. And we have our little private list of all the things they've done. And we rehearse them in our minds every once in a while. And when we do, we find ourselves in a downward spiral of despair or whatever. Whatever. Does it take the Holy Spirit, and it does, to change our lives in such a way that we can overcome that? Because we can't do it ourselves. And this is what the spirit of the house should be. This shouldn't be just a a Sunday night service in June 2020. It should be a daily thing where we purge from ourselves the things that keep us... Away from God and keep us away from others. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Verse 20. As though God were making his appeal through us. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are his agents. (laughs) Wow. Uh, as As though God was depending on us to get the job done. And it's a bit of a facetious remark because that's exactly what he depends upon. He depends upon us to do it on Christ's behalf. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You can't do this, any of it. You can't operate in the ministry of reconciliation if, first of all, you're not reconciled to God. And that is a daily process where we just come before him and say, God, just, we just uh, ask you to search our hearts, just, just see if there's wickedness in us. And, And we we ask that cleansing power of God's spirit and love to be innocent through us. Um, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So God made him sin to be sin for us. So he took on our sins and he... Intervene for us in God's behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and in that righteousness offer that same gift to others. Uh, wow, there's so much hatred in this world. So much. And, and I think that these present days of uh, the racial unrest in the United States and all of the Black Lives Matter rallies that are take, taking place all around the world. This is not something just that's U.S. It's, we had folks down here, um, right here in New Glasgow, uh, demonstrating uh, demonstrating peacefully. And we have it right here in New Glasgow. Remember uh, Viola Desmond, arrested because she was black and chose to sit in a place that only whites could sit. I wonder if the people of those days, if they could have looked into the future and saw her picture on a $10 bill, what they would have thought. Uh, just a few weeks ago, the, back in the 1800s when the Baptist church started, the first Baptist church, um, it, was, um, it was whites only. And so several years later, the blacks said, well, we, we want to have our Baptist church, too. So they started Second Baptist Church. And there was no fellowship between them. They weren't permitted in the white church. And uh, about a month ago, I'm not just sure what day it was, but um, John Dunnett, the uh, pastor of um, First Baptist Church, and Moses, the, the pastor of Second Baptist Church, they had a march. Between the two churches, and uh, Moses knelt and prayed on the steps of First Baptist Church, the white church, and then together they marched with the group over to Second Baptist Church, and they, and then this time it was John Dunnett who knelt and prayed for forgiveness uh, for what um, what they had done, how they had treated the blacks, even fellow Christians even fellow Baptists. Thank God for the spirit that, is, that has increased and, and where, where those feelings don't exist at all now between those churches. But that was the history. So really what they were doing was, in a sense, they were breaking off a generational curse. And God blessed them for it. Yes. And I can remember that that,
1: uh, family the West Side. Mm-hmm.
0: And they were persecuted. They were yeah. I've heard those They're stories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it was it was right through our whole Canadian culture. Well, um, this is a song that I, I just heard this week and uh I'm going to ask you to sing it. Uh, first, the first time around, you might just uh, want to listen to it, but you can sing it because it's easy, it's easy to catch on to. But uh, it, it's a real prayer, and, and it just so fits to what we've been sharing here tonight. So uh, I'm going to sit down and, uh, and sing from down there. Uh, but would you stand and uh, we can. Uh, it's a beautiful song.
1: be the generation of reconciliation and peace and let us be a holy nation where pride and prejudice shall cease. Let us speak the truth in love to the lost and least of these. Let us serve the Lord in unity so others will believe. Let us be the generation of reconciliation and peace. of reconciliation. Let mercy and forgiveness begin with you and me. Let us be the generation of reconciliation. The generation of reconciliation and peace. A generation of reconciliation Reconciliation and peace And let us be A holy nation Where pride and prejudice shall cease Let us speak the truth in love To the lost and least of these Let us serve the Lord in unity so others will believe. Let us be the generation of reconciliation and peace. and peace And let us build on one foundation Till He comes and the wars of men shall cease Oh, let us share the love of Jesus Without hypocrisy Let mercy and forgiveness begin with you and me. Let us be the generation of reconciliation.